When you boil it down to the essentials, a detective barely needs to be a human being. The plot of a really great whodunit demands only that the sleuthing entity observe, analyse, deduce and then denounce. A thinking machine with a clear input and output that governs the story. Indeed, the most famous detective of them all, Sherlock Holmes, rejected aspects of existence commonly associated with a full or rounded life, including curiosity about the world, political engagement and romantic relationships. The famous Rules of Golden Age detective fiction from the 1920s took a firm line on this latter point. Love interests were frowned upon, and it was felt by some critics of the genre that incorporating romance into a plot weakened it. And yet, some of the most popular authors from this time completely disregard this prohibition. All of the queens of crime, Christie, Allingham, Marsh and Sayers, and plenty of others besides wove romantic storylines through their crime fiction. And I think it adds greatly to the depth and variety of what they produced. Or, to put it another way, can you imagine Peter Whimsey without Harriet Vane? I know I can't. Welcome to She Done It. I'm Caroline Crampton. Now, those of you who listen all the way to the end of these podcast episodes that I make will know that the very last thing I usually include is a little teaser for the topic of the next one. If you heard the last one, you'll have noticed that what I said I'd be doing today and the title of this episode don't match up. That's for a good reason. I had been planning on releasing an episode today all about the kinds of prejudice that we encounter in Golden Age crime fiction and the best way to think about instances of things like anti-Semitism, racism and misogyny as modern-day readers. And I still very much do want to do that episode, because I think the topic is interesting and important. But all last week, when I was trying to do the research and writing necessary to put it out today, I was also reading news stories and messages about the worsening coronavirus pandemic around the world. And I found it really hard to do justice to such a serious and potentially upsetting subject in that circumstance. Where I live in the UK, we're now working from home and making only essential trips out. And I know lots of you listening will be in similar situations or facing even more severe lockdown measures. I hope you're all well and taking all sensible precautions. I know that when I'm struggling with a difficult situation and need to take my mind off things, detective fiction is one of the things that I use. And I suspect the same is true for lots of you. It's not known as convalescent literature for nothing. So in that spirit, I wanted to talk about something cheering and uplifting today, hence the change of schedule. I have no plans to stop making episodes, by the way. If anything, now that other work I do is being postponed, I have more time to spend on it than usual. So She Done It book club members should look out for some extra bonus episodes. I am, however, going to stop trailing the next subject for now and just work on whatever feels best at the time. And with that in mind, let's talk about crime and romance. That directive about keeping romance out of detective fiction appears most clearly in 20 Rules for Writing Detective Stories by the American author S.S. Van Dyne, published in 1928 in the American magazine. Rule 3 says, There must be no love interest. The business in hand is to bring a criminal to the bar of justice, not to bring a lovelorn couple to the hymeneal altar. 
His other commands are mostly to do with ensuring the author plays fair by the reader when it comes to clues and deductions. Although he does also veto, quote, long descriptive passages and literary dallying with side issues. The British detective writer Ronald Knox also wrote a set of rules around the same time that are often held up next to Van Dyne's. But he didn't have anything to say about romantic love interests. Perhaps because, in addition to penning whodunits and being an early member of the detection club, he was also a Roman Catholic priest. I talked lots more about the rules and their legacy back in episode 9 of this podcast, so suffice it to say here that Van Dyne's anti-love sentiment was shared by lots of critics who preferred the pure puzzle of a classic whodunit and didn't want their crime fiction sullied by contact with what some might call real human emotion. Before I get into talking about some of the best uses of romance in detective fiction, because I am in favour of it, if that wasn't already clear, let's briefly touch upon the case against it. First, there's the idea that the introduction of romantic feelings ruins the fundamental mechanisms of a whodunit's plot. The usual complaint about this crops up when the detective themselves, or their recurring sidekick, has a flirtation or a relationship with a character involved in the murder plot somehow, because you can place a fairly safe bet that their paramour won't then turn out to be the murderer, or even an accomplice. Love bends the straight lines of a good plot, this point of view states. It messes with the careful concealment of the culprit, until the final chapter. A detective in love is one who isn't thinking clearly and who might not always act absolutely in the interests of justice, too. John Dixon Carr worked with this last effect several times, perhaps most blatantly in his 1944 novel Till Death Do Us Part. It's all there in the title. This is a story about love and trust and betrayal, which also happens to be an excellent locked-room mystery. Carr's sleuth Dr Gideon Fell finds himself sympathising with and even assisting a woman who he believes to be a murderess three times over. And the author seems to condone this impulse, rather than sternly condemning it as a transgression of the detective's code. Those who find love to be the antithesis of deduction are essentially followers of Sherlock Holmes. Conan Doyle had his character put this very starkly in The Sign of Four. Love is an emotional thing. And whatever is emotional is opposed to that true cold reason which I place above all things, he says. I should never marry myself, lest I bias my judgment. It's black and white, this or that, he argues. You can be a great detective, or you can be in love. You can't be both. In this book, this statement is actually a direct snub to his Watson, who ends the story engaged to their client, Mary Morstan. The sidekick can afford such luxuries as emotional connection but the powerful mind of the sleuth must abstain. If it wasn't already obvious, I think this approach is a bit limiting. I've never been a pure puzzle addict, partly because I don't think such a thing really exists. Murder mysteries are about people, and people contain messy multitudes. But when I have encountered a story that is mainly written for the glory of clever mechanics, and has little or no emphasis on emotional development, it usually comes across to me as a bit stale and sterile. I could admire the brilliance with which all the threads are woven together, but I will immediately forget all about it as soon as I've turned the page. Emotion, and romance in particular, allows authors to experiment with perspective and subjectivity, as that example I mentioned from John Dixon Carr demonstrates. It also allows writers to round out their characters, 
Agatha Christie's Tommy and Tuppence are a good illustration of this. Even their most ardent fans would admit that the content of their mysteries isn't always the most original. But the way Christie fleshed out their characters and relationship make the books and stories highly readable, with the possible exception of the late novel Postern of Fate, but we won't go into that right now. Whereas many of her recurring sleuths never age or grow much, I think Poirot must be about 130 by the time of Curtin, for instance, Tommy and Tuppence are at a different stage of their life and marriage every time we meet them. We see them as young tearaways in the post-World War I novel The Secret Adversary, as middle-aged parents in N or M, and then as elderly retirees in By the Pricking of My Thumbs. That progression gives their story emotional heft far beyond the mysteries they solve, and made it into a series that has delighted millions down the years. And there'll be more on that after the break. In History's Secret Heroes, Helena Bonham Carter shines a light on extraordinary stories from World War II. This is a series that tells the tales from the Second World War that are unjustly less well-known than the oft-repeated histories of that time. Personally, I tend to default to the position that military history, or the history of wars as it is usually told, is just not for me. But diving into this series has shown me that I can be wrong about that, and that maybe I just haven't been experiencing the right sort of history. The brand new second series of History's Secret Heroes is out now, and it's absolutely full of brilliant episodes that had me gripped from start to finish. In it, we learn how a single woman, Christine Granville, skied into occupied Poland and gathered essential intelligence for the Allies, which changed the course of the war. We also look at how Raymond Gurem used his circus skills to break in and out of a Nazi internment camp to sneak in food and supplies for his family, and how a young Filipino woman named Josefina Guerrero took advantage of her health condition to join the resistance and become one of the most consequential spies of World War II. I'm especially drawn to stories about code-breaking, as I love puzzles, and to me it often feels like the real-life counterpart to solving a mystery. I loved the episode called The Unbreakable Navajo Code, about a group of Native American soldiers who devised a code for the Allies' use, and I also really enjoyed the one about Emily Anderson, an Irish cryptanalyst who worked both at Bletchley Park in the UK and then in Cairo to decrypt vital intelligence. Helena Bonham Carter voices all of these episodes in a way that makes you feel like they're just being whispered directly into your ear by someone who really knows how to tell a dramatic tale to full effect. There are experts interviewed, but also friends, family members and witnesses, so each story feels personal and intimate, as well as historically significant. Episodes will be released on Mondays, wherever you get your podcasts. But if you're in the UK, you can listen to the full series now, first on BBC Sounds. Like a lot of people, I think, I don't always analyse my own reading habits in great detail. Within the detective fiction genre, I know that I gravitate towards particular authors and reread particular books, but I'm not always considering what it is that attracts me to some stories and not others. When I started putting together lists of books to talk about in this episode, though, I came to realise just how important emotional depth is to me in crime fiction. Almost all of the works that I return to over and over again contain elements of romance or friendship beyond what might be considered within the rules. I'm obviously not alone here, as evidenced by the fact that all four of the queens of crime made substantial use of these tropes in their works. As four of the best-known and most widely read authors who began publishing in the 1920s, Marjorie Allingham, Agatha Christie, Nio Marsh and Dorothy L. Sayers, can, I think, be reasonably considered a definitive authority on this topic, 
and every single one of them had a lot to say in her books about love or the lack of it. Let's dispense with Christie first, since despite her prolific output and huge reputation, she's actually the least interesting writer in this way. Other than Tommy and Tuppence, she mostly used romance either as a motive for murder, such as all the times that unrequited love or adultery end in violent acts, or as a bit of light relief. Poirot's sidekick Captain Hastings is always falling for pretty girls during their cases, which he is gently and lovingly mocked for by his friend. Poirot himself, of course, has his version of the woman in Vera Rosikoff, a mysterious countess who appears in The Big Four from 1927, and then two subsequent short stories. Perhaps her most memorable turn is in The Capture of Cerberus from the 1947 short story collection The Labours of Hercules. She is to Poirot a woman in a thousand in a million. This story is the last one in the collection, and after Poirot has cleaned up the canine crime, there is a short scene between him and his secretary Miss Lemon, during which the latter deduces that her boss is once more thoroughly smitten with the Countess. Vera never appears in a Christie book again, and her whole character is flamboyant to the point of stereotype, so I think we can safely conclude that Christie only ever intended her to be a light-hearted diversion for her sleuth. But I do find that this interlude makes Poirot a more appealing character. Even the great egotist, with all of his pride in his little grey cells, can be conquered by his affections for a former jewel thief with an extravagant taste in cosmetics. In the hands of Nio Marsh, the progress of the serious love interest for her recurring sleuth Roderick Allen is an interesting way of tracking her development as a writer. The Scotland Yard detective Allen is a bachelor in her first five novels, and although he's fairly susceptible to pretty women, he doesn't form any lasting attachments. That changes in 1938's Artists in Crime, when he meets the painter Agatha Troy on the boat on his return trip from New Zealand after the events of vintage murder. Once the ship docks, Troy goes off to teach at an artist's colony, and when a murder takes place there, Alan happens to be staying nearby to investigate. So far, so predictable, and it's a scenario that has often been criticised as a transparent imitation of the whimsy vein romance. Not everything runs smoothly for Alan and Troy, although they do eventually get engaged and married in a later book. The part that I think shows how Marsh went her own way and left Sayer's influence behind comes in books like Final Curtain from 1947 and Clutch of Constables from 1968, when Troy becomes the main protagonist with Alan left in the background. Although I do really like many of Marsh's books, I can't deny that her sleuth is, well, boring and somewhat forgettable. Agatha, though, only gets more interesting as the books go on. Using a romance for her detective was a brilliant tactic by Marsh, since it simultaneously made Alan less two-dimensional, while also allowing her to introduce another recurring character for future books. Since Marjorie Allingham's Albert Campion started life as a parody of Lord Peter Whimsey, it's not that surprising that his romances also have some Sayers-esque flourishes to them. In 1930's Mystery Mile, there's a very well-handled one-sided romance between Campion and his old friend Biddy Paget, although it doesn't necessarily end very happily for him. Then, like Alan, he has a romantic arc that spans many books with Amanda Fitton, who first appears as a 17-year-old in 1933's Sweet Danger. She resurfaces in The Fashion in Shrouds, now grown up and working as an aerospace engineer, 
and in the course of the case she and Campion pretend to be engaged as part of the investigation. As ever with Allingham's work, there's a good deal of the Woodhouseian farce to it, and the will-they-won't-they nature of Amanda and Campion's romance over multiple books absolutely has that quality. But as her sleuth matured as a character and threw off some of his sillier mannerisms, Allingham was able to use the relationship to add depth and gravitas to her stories too. This is especially evident in the World War II story Tiger in the Smoke, which is generally considered to be among her best work, and in which Amanda plays an important role. Which leads me, finally, to arguably the greatest detective fiction romance, Lord Peter Whimsey and Harriet Vane. Whimsey had already appeared in four full-length novels by himself by the time that Sayers introduced Vane in 1930's Strong Poison. He was popular, but something of a Woodhousian aristocratic caricature with his monocle and drop G's. In 1925, Sayers wrote to a friend that the process of constructing a Whimsey story was, quote, rather like laying a mosaic, putting each piece apparently meaningless and detached into its place, until suddenly one sees the thing as a consistent picture. She also said that the whole thing was, quote, most effective when done in the flat. Later, she said that her novels showed signs of becoming round, meaning that she was leaving this two-dimensional structure behind in favour of something more developed and less tied to the classical conventions of the whodunit. I think her genius in giving Lord Peter a love story, which plays out over four books published in the span of seven years, was to never allow the romance to have greater priority in the plot than the detective's inquiry. It amplifies and enhances the mystery, rather than detracting from it. We see this perfectly in Strong Poison, Peter's instant sympathy and affection for Harriet Vane upon seeing her in the dock being tried for murder is the impetus he needs to set out on the investigation that forms the spine and major subject of the book. The same goes for Have His Carcass, where their increasing emotional entanglement is still subordinate to the sleuthing they do together. Harriet finds a body while on a solo walking holiday, and she only summons Peter to help her with great reluctance, and because, despite everything else, she still has great respect for his abilities as a detective. From the end of Strong Poison through to the end of Gordy Knight, Harriet and Peter struggle with their relationship. Harriet finds it difficult to reconcile her gratitude to him with any romantic relationship they might have. She can't work out where her feelings stem from. The pair also come from very different backgrounds, with Harriet an impoverished middle-class doctor's daughter who supports herself through her writing, and Peter the younger brother of a duke and rolling in cash. To accept Peter's constant marriage proposals would be to accept a certain position in society, and the stuffy rituals that go with that are something that Harriet is loath to adopt. It also could mean giving up her hard-fought-for independence, and if you remember the episode I made about the Mutual Admiration Society and how Sayers and her friends struggled to establish their careers, it's not hard to understand why a woman writer in the 1920s might be wary of anything that polluted her room of one's own. Neither of them are in the first flush of youth, either, and both have had troubled relationships in the past. They're awkward and short-tempered with each other, both scared of revealing their true feelings or offering a commitment the other might refuse. This makes them much more readable. Their romance is no saccharine fairy tale, 
but rather a story of two prickly, intelligent people working out if they want to spend the rest of their lives together, and if so, how to do it. In Gordy Knight, Sayers makes the unconventional decision to make Harriet, not Peter, the central figure of the book. She returns to the Women's College in Oxford, where she got her degree, to help the staff there to solve a poison pen mystery. She's plunged into all kinds of questions about women's work, structural misogyny, and whether there is such a thing as an equal marriage. Once again, the aspects of this that relate to her connection with Peter are all there because they are relevant to the mystery plot, first and foremost, meaning that there's no sense that one thing detracts or distracts from the other. Like when Agatha Troy takes centre stage in Marsha's final curtain, in Gordy Knight, we get to see Harriet not so much as Peter Whimsey's love interest, but as a person with an interior life of her own. It benefits the novel greatly to diversify the perspective like this, and for readers of the whole Whimsy series, it's just really interesting to see the central sleuth from other books through someone else's eyes. Over the course of their romance, Harriet and Peter evolve their own way of speaking to each other. They like to trade quotations, make puns, reference literature they both enjoy, and they do this more and more as they grow more comfortable and intimate with each other. In my experience, this can be the most controversial aspect of the way Sayers wrote their dynamic, since some readers don't love having to look up medieval devotional texts and Latin verse to understand what's going on. Personally, I enjoy the searching it requires, and find that understanding their references enhances my understanding of the characters, but I get that footnotes in a whodunit are not everybody's cup of tea. The subtitle of the final full-length Harriet and Peter book, Busman's Honeymoon, tells you just how expert Sayers had become at the balancing act between crime and romance. A love story with detective interruptions is how she described it. It's a bit of a formal jumble, with an epistolary section to start, describing their engagement and wedding, followed by a series of flashbacks, mostly in Harriet's voice, before the present tense section dealing with the case begins. The book started life as a play that Sayers co-wrote with her friend Muriel St. Clair Byrne, so it's not that surprising that the novelised version is a little clunky and relies on visual set pieces. From a romantic narrative perspective, though, it's kind of extraordinary. From a romantic narrative perspective, though, it's kind of extraordinary. I think we would usually expect to leave Harriet and Peter at the end of Gordy Night, with the rest of their lives to exist only in the imagination of the keen reader. But Sayers actually tried to write out what a happily ever after might look like when the characters are set on a partnership of equals. In the dedication, Sayers wrote that It has been said by myself and others that a love interest is only an intrusion upon a detective story. But to the characters involved, the detective interest might well seem an irritating intrusion upon their love story. This was her answer to that dilemma. And although it's not as strong a work as Gordy Knight, say, it's still a pretty good yarn. Sayers' approach to romance in detective fiction has been very influential on the genre. As well as her contemporaries like Marsh and Allingham, generations of writers following have followed her lead in mingling the two kinds of plot. Ellis Peters, Ruth Rendell, Barbara Mertz, and others all published books that reveal aspects of the Whimsy Vane template. I personally really enjoy the work of Ellie Griffiths, a crime writer working today, 
and I think her long-running Ruth Galloway-Harry Nelson romance also has its origins back in Sayers, even if there's a bit less quoting of John Donne. Jill Peyton Walsh has written four follow-on novels that focus on Harriet and Peter, after Sayers' own stories run out. And I think they work because of the enduring appeal of that relationship. I'll talk more about this in another episode, but although Golden Age detective fiction continuations have become quite popular in the publishing industry recently, they're often pretty hard to pull off as anything other than pastiche. Although she writes a decent Harriet Vane, Walsh wisely doesn't attempt to imitate Sayers' prose, and she also goes to the trouble of inventing fairly decent mystery plots for the married sleuths to tackle. They age through her books too, appearing as newlyweds in Thrones Dominations, and then they're in their 60s by the time of the late scholar. I only read Walsh's books very recently, despite having known about them for years, because I was put off by the concept and I didn't like the idea of Harriet and Peter being written by anyone other than Sayers. But having now inhaled them all in a matter of days, I can see that I was wrong. They really work, for the reasons that I've already outlined, and just because the characters have such enduring appeal. The best murder mystery romances are always walking that line between what Sayers called sentimental comedy and serious whodunit. The really outstanding ones fuse the two to make something entirely new. This episode of She Done It was written and narrated by me, Caroline Crampton. You can find out more about the podcast and everything it covers at shedoneitshow.com, where there are also transcripts of every episode. She Done It is edited by Ewan McAleese. Production assistance from Leandra Griffith. Member support for the She Done It book club from Connor McLaughlin. Thanks for listening. I'll be back soon with a new episode. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. <laughs> to be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.